So here we are in Romans, uh, chapter 2 we're diving into today. We spent two weeks in chapter 1. First of all, we saw Paul opens up with this uh, really, really happy, uh, chipper, welcoming, he's excited, the gospel of God, the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's, we're going to have a party. I can't wait to get to Rome to share with mutual encouragement with you. Uh, we're going to get converts. It's going to be great. I'll bring the chips and salsa. And, 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 and it's like, all right, this is going to be a good book. And then you turn to the, you don't even have to turn the page. It's the very second half of the first chapter. He launches into this like 180 degree turn, this Jekyll and Hyde kind of turn. And he's like, now the wrath of God is being unleashed upon the world. Where did this come from? We saw last week, though, that the wrath of God is actually good news. And if you don't know how the wrath of God could possibly be good news, uh, go to the website and catch that, that message. Because it is. It is gospel. It is good news. We saw a few things. I got a few... Uh, flip these up on the screen here, guys. I got a few things that we did see yesterday, or last week, rather, that one, the wrath of God's being revealed. I said that. Um, and two, uh, that the wicked uh, are the people, the wrath of God is on display against the wicked. The wicked are those who call evil uh, good and good evil. And then Paul even gives us a little bit of a, an example. It's not meant to be exhaustive. He's not trying to list every sin you could do, but he gives us an example of things that, that the evil, uh, the, the evil wicked people do. Uh, they gossip, they lie, they're sexually immoral, they dishonor their parents, and he goes on, okay? And then we saw thirdly that God's wrath is not only deserved because those things are in fact bad, though they are wicked, it's not only deserved, but actually the wicked are in some strange counterintuitive way. They are asking Asking for God's wrath. And so that's why the phrase God gave them over that is used three times. That's why that phrase uh, is used there. Essentially, it's what they're asking for in their persistence in doing evil. Now, you have to pause for a minute because uh, I can imagine, think about it for a second. Who is this letter written to? The Christians in Rome. Big capital city of Rome, right? Megalopolis there. Uh, but what's the church in Rome look like at this time? What's the, who, who's in that church? It's a couple, a couple types of people. You had Jews who had converted, who, Jews who had seen Jesus as the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament. And they converted. They, gave, they put their faith and trust in him. It cost them a whole lot. Oftentimes they got kicked out of their synagogues for doing that. Uh, it was a big deal. Then on the other side, you had these Gentiles. And Gentile just means not Jewish, right? You had these guys who maybe didn't know very much about what it meant to be a Jew. They didn't know very much about the history or what you're supposed to eat or what, how you're supposed to dress or uh, any of that. But they heard the story of Jesus. They got excited about it. They got convinced and convicted of their sin and convinced of the truth of the Jesus story. They trusted in him and lo and behold, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So now you have these two different groups of people coming together to create this new thing this new thing that's going to be called the church, the world's never seen before, and they're going to have all kinds of problems because of that mixing together. But who's not included in this group? At least probably not in the minds of the people who are in the church. It's the wicked. The peop- you can imagine, you can imagine the Jewish a Christian in Rome thinking, okay, as Paul's listing all of these heinous sins, he's thinking maybe he, he gets a little squeamish thinking about how he maybe was looking at his neighbor's daughter last week. Okay, that's not good. I know that's not good. But then quickly he shifts his attention. Oh, but, you know, 
my, my sacrifice record is spot on, right? I've been going and keeping the Sabbath, right? I've been, I, 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 the purity laws, I haven't eaten anything unclean in, maybe ever. Oh, so, whew, whew, you know? Or maybe you could think of the, maybe there's a Gentile there who, who, who he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's trying to live like Jesus, and he looks down, he's listening to Paul again, the same list of sins, and, and maybe he's looking at the market at those busybody gossipers down there, and he's got a mental checklist in his mind. Oh, I'm not that. I didn't do that. Or down at the brothel, you know, I'm not like those guys. Check, check, check. I didn't do all those things. But those folks aren't reading this letter. The folks that are on the checklist, the brothel folks, the gossiper folks, the, right? They're not on the, they're not on, they're not reading the letter. The folks that are reading the letter are the ones who probably think they're not so bad. Those are the folks who are reading the letter. So now watch what Paul does as we turn to chapter 2. We're going to go there together. Uh, as we turn to chapter 2, watch how Paul Puts these folks in their place. Verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God falls, rightly falls on those who practice such things. Back to the list he's talking about, right? Calling evil good and good evil. The judgment of God is justified. We already said that. It's, it, it's, it's deserved. It rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you can escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's a mouthful. That sentence simply means, here Paul says, do you suppose that because God hasn't punished you to this point, that you can then go on living as you always have, that he somehow doesn't have a problem with the way you're living? Paul's saying, no, God's not sparing you punishment because what you're doing is okay. He's sparing you to give you time to hear the gospel and to repent and to turn to him. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He, God, will render, that means he will give, to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it was hammered into my head that salvation is by faith alone and that works is uh, not how we are saved. You too? Right? You too? You probably heard it from this pulpit many times. And that is true. So maybe you're wondering, what is this going on here about God rewarding people for good? You get eternal life if, what does he say? If uh, you, you seek in well-doing, seeking glory. And then punishment if you don't do good. Punishment for those 
who, who don't do good. How do you square that? Well, let me, let me do this for you. Let me, let me just read that again. And as I read it again, I'll ask you the question, and maybe you can answer it for yourself. Which category do you fall into? Let's listen. Back to verse 6. Paul says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Patience and well-doing, okay, glory, honor, and immortality. They're seeking for God's glory, of course, we know. Is that you? Is that you? Well, then he will give eternal life. Now, verse 8 kind of balances the scales a little here. But for those who are self-seeking, uh-oh. Oh, self-seeking. I guess I could stop there, personally. I don't know about you, but I could stop there. But I'll go on. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. That verse 11 there, that short little verse there, is actually the key to this whole section. God shows no partiality. That's what Paul's driving at here. I talked about how we have these two disparate types of people, the Jewish Christians and then the Gentile Christians coming together to form this new thing. And there's all kinds of tension going on there. Well, there's all kinds of superiority complexes going on here. Now, it is true that nobody is righteous. And Paul's going to say that later on. He's going to get real specific. Everybody's sinful and everybody uh, is under God's wrath. But right here, what he's saying is you Jewish folks don't have any higher standing with God because you have the law. And you Gentile folks, you don't have any higher standing than the other Gentiles in town because you aren't going to the clubs and the bars and the brothels and whatever else. Those things don't put you any higher in God's book. God shows no partiality. And all that means for the Jew first and also the Greek, that's all that means. It just means for both, non-Jews and non-Jews alike. Verse 12, Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law, that means uh, non-Jewish people or Gentiles, for all those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that means the Jews, will be judged by the law, which, by the way, it is now clear they do not keep. So everything's even. Everybody's in the same boat. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's a new word out there, at least I only heard it about a, a year ago, maybe. Judgy? You hear that word? Judgy? You're not supposed to be uh, judgy. Recently, there's a, uh, a phenomenon made its way around the internet. Apparently, young folks 
are taking uh, Tide Pods, you know, the laundry detergent, and making YouTube videos of themselves eating it so that they can get likes, right, on YouTube or retweets or whatever. And it's crazy and it's stupid. It's ridiculous, right? Heads up and down, right? Right? But what's actually more has been more surprising has been the backlash that some famous people have gotten for calling that behavior stupid. Who are you to judge? Have you never done anything stupid? Or to each his own. They aren't hurting anybody but themselves. Let them be, you know, uh, well, let them figure it out for themselves or something like that. You're not supposed to be judgy. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that ridiculous? This is not the kind of judgmentalism that uh, when Paul... Uh, when Paul says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. That's, this is not what the judginess that Paul is talking about. We are supposed to judge behaviors. Paul never backtracks on that list of sins that he lists in, 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 in chapter 1. We're supposed to just automatically agree with him that, yes, those things are, are wicked. And in fact, not calling them wicked is part of the problem. So when he says, don't be judgy, he's not saying, don't point out, uh, bad behaviors. Don't point out, don't call evil evil, right? Think about this now. It's important because if we can't call out bad behaviors, we're going to have all sorts of problems, not only in our families but in, or in our churches, but in even the legal system. How could, we, how could we send anybody to jail? How could we give anybody a ticket, right? I got to tell you, if we have, uh, what would we do about church discipline? Are we supposed to not discipline anybody in the church for anything ever? Because, well, are you any better? That's crazy. That's crazy. Of course, if, if, if an elder is, is, is keeping a mistress on the side and it becomes evident and it, becomes, it comes out that that's happening, you, you know what? That person is not going to be an elder anymore. There's going to be discipline. And now God will forgive him through repentance, we certainly hope. And we hope that his family will will recover and forgive him as well. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the office of the elder, I mean, that doesn't mean that, 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 that he's entitled to that office. We judge the behaviors. And you know what? We don't do it because the rest, of, in this hypothetical I'm painting here, it, it, I could foresee somebody saying, you know, you're, are you better? Are you any better? Uh, that's not what it's about. It's actually, it's exactly because we know that we're not better. It's exactly because we know that we are capable of the very same things that we need to make an example out of that stuff. And that we need to highlight it and point it out that it's wrong, that it's wicked, that it's evil, that it has no place among the people of God. You see how that works? We have this crisis of morality, of this relativism that's, that's soaked in, even to the church. Looking around the news today, we got uh, Christian leaders who are saying, we can't even say that what the politicians are doing are bad, is bad anymore, because who are we to judge? I got to tell you, if, you're, if you see a politician, or anybody for that matter, saying things that are blasphemous, saying things that demean other people who are, who are made in the image of God, you, the people of God, better be the first one standing up and saying, that is wicked, whether you voted for him or not. We've got to call out behaviors. 
That's not what Paul's talking about. But this is where it gets complicated because now, what is Paul talking about? What is the judginess that we're supposed to avoid? This is where we really got to work and this is where it gets personal. Because see, the, the, the world says, don't be judgy. You can write this down on your notes page. I only got a couple things for you to write down today. Write this down though. The world says, don't be judgy because I'm okay and you're okay. Right? I'm okay, you're okay. Let's all just hug. Let's all just hug, right? That's sort of the world's mentality. Or if you're not okay, you know, we're all at least together in it, I suppose. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, don't be judgy because we are all that bad. <laughs> the, the, the impulse you have to judge that guy, this is what kind of, if I could summarize the Bible, the impulse you have to judge that guy is correct in that he really may be as bad as you think he is, maybe even worse, but so are you. And that's hard. That's hard. That's hard to believe. But it's true. It's true. The judginess that Paul warns us about is a heart condition. Here's how you know if you're doing it. If you're doing it. Whenever you have that impulse to judge somebody, and judging them makes you feel better about yourself, you probably need to stop. You see, it can happen so quick, but you probably need to check yourself and you probably need to knock it off. Whenever that impulse to judge somebody else, remember, we've already said we're supposed to point out wrong behaviors. And in a democracy, we're supposed to be able to debate our ideas, right? That's not what we're talking about. You can disagree vehemently with somebody. That's not what we're talking about. But whenever that impulse to judge makes you feel a little bit better by making them feel a little bit worse or by looking a little bit down on them, that's what you've just done. You've just done what Paul here condemns in Romans chapter 2. And it's happening more and more and more and more in our culture. Pay attention to the news. Pay attention to the news. Especially the pundits, the ones who get all heated and worked up and yell at each other, right? Pay attention. Are they just trying to convince you of a particular way of looking at something? Or are they trying to convince you that those people are stupid? That those people are less than you? That you're better than them because you're part of this tribe? Pay attention to that. It happens in churches. I will say it happens in our denomination. It does. We look at other pastors from other churches and other denominations. And I tell you, it's a temptation to feel, well, we've got, we're right. And so we're somehow then better. At least we're not those whatever, fill in the blank churches. Happens in families. It happens in families. When somebody offends you in your family and your knee-jerk reaction is to them's fighting words, right? What are you doing? I'm better than you 
and I need to make sure you know it. Little sisters do it to each other. Husbands and wives do it to each other. That's the judginess we have to be careful, we have to look out for. And there's... If you doubt what I'm saying... Because maybe some of you might be really proud about the decisions that you've made. And you've made a lot out of your lives. Did well in school, work. And that's great stuff. That's really great. But somebody who knows what Jesus does for, has done for them knows that all of that stuff is a gift. That we can't really claim credit for any of those successes. I used to take uh, mission trips down to Mexico. And I've led six or eight of them. I don't know how many. But uh, when invariably, I've had teenagers down there and I've had uh, 70-year-olds down there. And invariably, uh, it'll happen where we'll be in a village talking to people or we'll be working on a church project with some folks or doing a Bible school or something with some folks. And on the drive home, it'll be quiet, it'll 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 be more pensive than usual. And somebody will say, why do we have so much? Or they'll say the opposite, but they mean the same thing. Why does God let that person live like that? And as a pastor, that just, I get so excited when those questions come up because I'm so convinced that when you're asking that question in your heart, you are this close to the kingdom of God. You are this close to getting it because there is no answer to that question. There is no reason why God has given you so much and why he has withheld so much from them. There's no answer that will satisfy that question. So what then, where, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? With gratitude, right? With gratitude. Because I don't care what kind of success you've made for yourself. If you'd have been born in some of those villages down there, your life would look a lot different. Even the people who do heinous crimes, things we, we don't even like to think about, let alone talk about. Imagine if you had been born and walked the walk that they had walked. Maybe you would have done the same things. Maybe you wouldn't have. But don't think you're not capable. Don't think you're not capable. That's a dangerous thing to think. I'm going to close with uh, something practical. It's something that I have learned to use uh, in my own prayer life, trying to be less judgmental, because I'm kind of a judgy person by nature, I'll confess to you. Uh, it's, and, and so, re- most recently, this was profound, profoundly impacted upon me. When You remember when we had the little two-year-old boy living with us, Jake? Some of you remember him if, you've been, if you were here. Well, he was uh, potty trained, and he was just so excited because he was doing such a good job when going number one. Well, I remember one night, we woke up about two in the morning, because Jake had woken up, and he was excited to practice his skills, Uh, only he didn't have to go number one. He had to go number two, and he hadn't mastered that. And so when he came into my room and woke me up, it just went from bad to worse. At first, you notice the smell. Okay, first reaction is just, you got dirty diaper, no problem. We'll fix. 
But then I turn the light on and you notice it's not just contained in the diaper. And then I look at his shirt. And then I look at the side of my bed. And then I get up, and at this point, I'm much more animated than I was just a moment ago. And my heart is racing a lot faster now, and my brain is spinning a lot faster. And I'm saying things that I know I'm going to regret. And I'm saying, and I'm, I'm being very, very, very judgy. I am definitely better than this person right now. And as I'm carrying him, I can find know exactly what the path that he took because I can follow the path across the carpet. And I can go to the toilet and I can see, and this is, I'm going to be up for a while. And I was, I was judgy. I was not happy. Not my best moment of fatherhood, parenting. But it was that same day, I I kid you not, later that day, it was like the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and gave me that image again of Jake with the dirty hands. And he said to me, isn't this a lot like what you look like when you stand before me? Your best deeds. Can we even do good deeds that are all the way good? Your best deeds. This is what you look like. When you stand before me. Helpless, Adam. Helpless to clean yourself up or to get your act together unless God the Father steps down, picks me up, gets dirty himself, and does it for me. And so there's a little diamond in your, in your bulletin. This is a sort of a, a mental progression that I prayerfully try to make when I'm tempted toward to be judgy. At the top, I put the, I think I put the word tr- target, target or trigger. Okay, pick either one would work. That's the target of my judginess. So here's what happens. Boom, something happens. I'm triggered. I want to judge. It could be somebody on the radio talks about those idiots on the other side of the aisle. It could be my spouse says something I take offense at. It could be any of those things, okay? I, boom, I'm targeted to judge. Now I want to judge. But instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reflect. I'm going to, instead of concentrating on being better than that person, I'm going to do what I did with Jake, and I'm going to see here a mirror. I'm going to see here, I wonder, do I look this way? Have I ever done what this person has just done to me? Have I ever offended God in this way? And immediately, it's very, very hard to maintain the same level of righteous indignation when you do that. I reflect. And I chose that word reflect because it's a mirror. It's a reflection. I reflect. And not only do I think about it, but I think I use this now as a mirror. The next step is I, I praise. Because I praise because what did God do with me when I appeared that way before him? When I mouthed off to him. When I lied to him. When I walked away from him again and again when I mistreated people that he loves and cares about? What did God do to me? Did he smite me? Or did he extend me grace? That leads me to praise. Thank you. Now now I'm in a place of gratitude. Now I'm completely different from that where I started, right? And then I pray. Because now, and this all happens instantaneously, friends, because now I have to enter back into that situation 
if it's, especially if it's somebody who's just offended me right now. Now I've got to enter back into that situation, but I want to be different. So God, now, having seen myself here, my reflection, realized what you've done for me, God. Now, God, I need you to revisit the situation and to be different, to extend grace. Show me, Father, how to be. And it doesn't mean that we won't have to talk about behavioral changes because we do judge behaviors. And sometimes we've got to have a talk. You can't talk to me like that. But it's, it's a heart condition. And that's a cycle. You might have to run through it again and again and again. It takes practice. But it's worked for me. The Lord has used that little, little tool there uh, to help me calm down and be a little less judgy. And so uh, my prayer, I would give that to you. And my prayer would be that he would use it in your heart and in your life in a similar way. Let's pray. Father, we know that we, uh, we, we don't measure up. But why do we keep insisting on justifying ourselves? Why do we keep making excuses for ourselves? I don't know. Father, today we, your people, we don't want to claim any of our own righteousness. We don't want to We don't want to stand on our own record because if we do that, we all have dirty hands. None of us would be worthy of the honor that you give us. And so we look to Jesus. We look to your perfect son who never sinned who never violated your law, who never harmed another human being, yet who took our sin upon himself on the cross to wipe our hands clean so that we might stand before you forgiven and free. Help us, Lord, to extend that same grace to others to not judge them, not to look at others and put them down, but to earnestly and honestly want what you want for them, their salvation. Not to want them to look like us, but to want them to know and to look like your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.